morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Well, I had a pretty weird dream a couple of weeks ago. It was a Sunday morning like this one here at Seabreeze, but instead of me speaking on stage, for some reason I was serving hot dogs at our outdoor kitchen out here. <laughs> and the line was long and we were running low on hot dogs. And then suddenly, for some reason, you never know in dreams why these things happen, but for some reason a hot dog eating contest broke out in the middle <laughs> of my dream. Well, we were already short on hot dogs, but now we were in serious trouble. So I began frantically running throughout the campus looking for more hot dogs. I don't know why I thought they would be somewhere on campus, but it turns out they were. They were hidden in the weirdest places. And being a dream, I don't exactly remember where they were. I remember there was, for some reason, there was some stash in the office back here. There was some behind the stage. I think there was another spot here in the auditorium, some different places around campus. I just kept finding hot dogs. And whenever I'd find a group of hot dogs, I'd bring them to the the hot dog eating contest, but you know how hot dog eating contests are. The consumption rate was far beyond my finding rate. And so the pressure just kept going up and up and up. And finally, in the middle of my hot dog panic, I woke up. And it took me a while to realize this was not a real crisis. This was just a dream. Now, why did I dream that? Well, I'm, I'm not sure. One guess is I changed my diet a little over a year ago, and I don't eat hot dogs anymore. So maybe this was my subconscious telling me how much I miss hot dogs. Now, don't go out and buy me any gift certificates to Costco for hot dogs. I really am swearing off hot dogs no matter what my subconscious says. But the truth is, I don't know why I dreamt that dream. It was bizarre. But let me ask you a bigger and even more important question. Why do we dream? I mean, we all dream. We all go to sleep and Part of the sleeping process is we create worlds that don't exist and goofy stories, like my hot dog story that's never going to happen. But the dreaming, of course, doesn't stop when we wake up. We often find ourselves in the middle of, day of the day drifting off into what we call daydreams, transporting ourselves to the places and the circumstances that we would rather be than where we are. And then when we look to the future, especially at the beginning of a year like this, we often dream of what might be. We have night dreams and daydreams and future dreams. And all of these dreams point to the fact that, like God, we've been given the ability to see what does not exist. God is everywhere. We can't do that, but we can be in two places at the same time. We can be where our body physically is, and our mind can be someplace completely different. And we have this capacity to dream because... God dreams. This is where it comes from. Now, God doesn't dream in uh, the night like we do. He doesn't daydream. God doesn't sleep. But he does create the future out of what he first dreams up. Scripture tells us that everything that is visible existed first in the mind of God. And he created us in his image so that we might be able to join him in turning dreams of the future into reality. So whenever we dream at night or we escape into our daydreams, we are really kind of stretching and exercising our dream muscles. But it's when we look to the future and dream about what might be, that's when we are doing the kind of dreaming that God does. Now, whenever sin entered into this world, it changed the way we dream. Not so much the night dreams or the daydreams, partly that, but mostly 
it changed the way we look at the future, the way we dream about the future. We became fundamentally independent dreamers. We have independent dreams of the future. And these dreams tend to be way too selfish and way too small. They are dreams that will benefit just us. They're selfish dreams. Or they're dreams that we think fit within what is possible for us and maybe those that we can get to join us on our dreams. Way too small. But God gave us this dreaming gift so that we might dream God dreams. Dreams that only he can accomplish, that we never could, not a, not a, not a hundred or a thousand of us ever could, but only God could. And dreams that will bless many more than just us, not just here and now, but in the generations to come. So let me give you the definition of a God dream for the purpose of this series. A God dream is a vision of the future that begins in the mind of God and is then given to us. So it's a vision of the future that originates, that begins first in the mind of God, and then we get to be a part of it. It's given to us. On the day that the church was born, we read these words of explanation given by the Apostle Peter. They're found in Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Here's what he says. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Now, it talks about the last days because those are in contrast to the former days. In the Bible, the last days are the New Testament portion of the Bible. The former days are the Old Testament portion of the Bible. And in the former days, the Old Testament, God would share his dreams with only a few prophets over time. His spirit would show up to one of these prophets and give them a vision of what was going to happen in the future. Or it might be an actual dream at night that was so vivid and that was then helped to be interpreted, and it would be a statement, a dream about what was going to happen in the future. And this is the way God would communicate his dreams in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. But then, suddenly, God went silent. No visions, no dreams, and no prophets for 400 years. This is what occurred between the Old Testament, the end of the Old Testament, and the beginning of the New Testament. 400 years of silence. And then the silence was broken in what we now call and just celebrated Christmas. A Savior was born, Christ the Lord. And after Jesus Christ accomplished his mission here, and just before he left, he told his followers to wait for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And they were doing just that. They had gathered in Jerusalem from many different nations. All of a sudden, tongues of fire appeared over their heads, and they began to speak in one another's language. They began to understand and speak in languages that they had not known, and they could understand a language they had not learned. And so Peter, the lead disciple, stood up to explain what was happening, and he quoted a passage from the prophet Joel, one of the last prophets in the Old Testament portion of the Bible, and that's what we just read in Acts 2.17. It's a, a quote from Joel. But let me read it again. This is what Peter said in the middle of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He said, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. The point that's being made is this. In the past, only a few 
would hear the dreams of God directly, and then those dreams would be passed on to God's people. But now, in these last days, every follower of Jesus Christ is going to be a part of this hearing. Men and women, young and old, they're all going to be a part of hearing directly from God. And so now, God's primary dream communication method is through His Spirit in the context of His church. So what that means is we don't gather here as a church to ask God for help with our individual 2019 dreams. We gather to consider what dreams God has for us together to accomplish in 2019. So in this series, I'm going to be sharing our best understanding of God's dream for us as a church as we move into this new year. But today I want to begin by describing the two important parts that are true of every God dream. The first thing that's true of a God dream is God dreams occur inside a frame. There's a limit to them. They occur inside of a frame. Years ago, I was telling a good friend of mine all that I was dreaming to accomplish in the coming year. And I remember that year, I was pretty motivated, pretty fired up, had a lot of great ideas of things that I would like to accomplish. And so I was telling him and describing this to him, and he said, boy, that sounds great. And then he asked me, well, so what are you going to stop doing? And I'd never thought of that. My plan had always just been to keep adding these new goals to my life. And he told me, he's a little older than me, he told me that in his experience, the first and most important step in getting anything done is to decide what you're going to stop doing in order to make room for what you are going to really focus on. I'd always just assumed I, I could just add more, which kind of explains why I kept not being able to pull off all the things that I really wanted to accomplish. I just kept adding more to my life. Now, sometimes we can't add more. Sometimes there's a season where we have to stretch and we do need to add more. And honestly, there's probably some people that really need to add more. They need to stop being lazy and do more. But I would guess that most in this room are in desperate need of subtracting, not adding something to their life. We tend to become a collection of all that we've been adding over the years. If you've moved recently and you've been living where you had lived for a while, you know what this experience is like. You go into the attic and you're in the closets and maybe the garage and you start pulling out stuff, and it's just a collection of all you've kind of been adding and not getting rid of over the years, and it, it's quite a bit. And this is what happens to our lives. We just kind of get cluttered up with stuff we've added and not gotten rid of in our schedule. Now, why do we just keep adding and not subtracting? Well, it's because we, we lack a frame, borders, in which to focus and to limit and to get our efforts on track. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 13, the Apostle Paul, early first uh, century church planter, is writing to a church that he got started in the city of Corinth, and he says this in verse 13 of chapter 10. He says, We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. There's two important lessons that, that are buried in this verse. The first is this critical idea that we have proper limits. We all have limits. We have limited time. We have limited money. We have limited energy. 
We have limited ability. And in case we forget that we are limited, God has instilled in us biologically a mechanism to remind us every 24 hours how limited we are. We get tired and we go to sleep every 24 hours. We fall asleep and we do absolutely nothing other than dream silly dreams about hot dogs and other things. That is very unproductive. And then we wake up, having been completely asleep, accomplishing absolutely nothing, we wake up and we tend to then forget what the lesson was behind that sleep, that we're limited, and we go through our days pretending that we have no limits. We just keep adding more and assuming we can do more. But God knows our limits, even though we might forget them. I mean, he's the one that made us limited. He's not limited. He's infinite. We are finite beings. And so when God invites us to join him to accomplish one of his dreams, he doesn't give us the whole dream. He gives us a piece. It's called an assignment. And an assignment has limits to it. There are some things that are included in the assignment, and there are some things that are not included in the assignment and belong to somebody else. So the first lesson in this verse is we have proper limits. The question is, do we know what those are? And are we living within them? The second important finding in this verse is we are given one of the biggest reasons behind why we tend to go beyond our proper limits. It says we boast beyond proper limits. Pride, arrogance is the main reason that we tend to operate beyond our proper limits. One of the things I've noticed in our culture is, is the popularity of a game called My Life is Busier Than Your Life. Now, this is not a formal game. This is an informal game that a lot of people play. And this is how the rules of this game go. If you want status in a group, don't tell them if you just got eight hours of sleep the night before. Wait until you just got something like five hours of sleep. Because if you want your status to go up, if you tell a group of people, hey, I got eight hours of sleep last night. It was great. What are you going to hear? Well, I wish I could. I wish my life was so easygoing that I could get eight hours of sleep. Your status will go down. But if you, for some reason, stumble in, bleary-eyed, red-eyed, and you say, I only got five hours of sleep last night. What's going to happen? Ooh, you must be important. You must be doing something critical. You... You were probably on the phone with the president or, or someone in critical that, that you were having to strategize. You, know, you must really be important. You only got five hours of sleep. So wait until you didn't get much sleep and then tell people that. Don't tell them if you got a good night's sleep. Here's another rule. Don't dare tell people how you might be finding moments of peace in the middle of your busy life. Don't tell them that. Tell them that you're stressed out of your mind. And if you don't want to say the words, just look stressed. Just oh, huff and puff and oh. Everyone's going to assume, wow, you're busy. Therefore, you must be important. Now, God looks at this game and all of its versions, and he, what we think is impressive, he just thinks is plain silly. Now, of course, I don't know what words he might use to respond to this, my guess is something like this. God might look at us playing this game amongst ourselves and say, look, they're trying to act like me again. There's been several versions of that, but that's one of their favorite games. Let's pretend we're God. They're refusing to admit that they're limited. They're trying to do more than I've assigned to them. 
And then they're bragging about it to each other. The reason we tend to not stay within our proper limits is because it's humbling to admit that you have a limit. It's humbling to admit to yourself and others that you cannot do something. And if that something is attached to someone who wants you to do it, it's really hard to say no. I mean, they'll, they'll be upset. They'll be disappointed. They're going to try to make you feel guilty. So we just, ah, it's not worth saying no. So we just, okay, okay, okay. We, we just keep adding more and more and more. But God dreams are within proper limits. They're not for boasting. One of the first churches that had the privilege of being part of a God dream was this church in the city of Corinth. And as the dream that God had for this church, as he has for most churches, began to become reality and people's lives began to change, there, the church itself became divided over who, were, who was to get more credit for these dreams becoming reality. Was it Paul, the one who had brought the good news of Jesus to this city and had started this church? Or was it Apollos? who had followed on behind Paul and had stuck around for the better part of two years to really help people understand how to grow and follow Jesus Christ. Who, who was to be given more credit? And Paul, as he writes his first letter to this church, early on in the letter, he wants to set the record really straight on this. And so he says this in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6. What after all is Apollos? What is Paul? What, what am I? We're only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has what? Assigned to each the same task? No, his task. Paul says, my, my assignment was to plant the seed. Then I headed off to plant the seed somewhere else. Apollos, he stuck around and he watered it. But who made it grow? God. God made it grow. You see, God dreams have only two positions. Many assignments, but only two positions. There's God whose dream it is. That's the first level. Then the second level is God's servants. Lots of assignments, but no one's more important than anybody else. We're all God's servants. And so when the dream becomes a reality, it's not the individuals who did their individual assignments that gets the credit. It's God who gets the credit. It's his dream. We're just privileged to be a part of it. Now that's humbling. But it's also very freeing to be clear on what your assignment is and what it isn't. I mean, how important, can you imagine how important it must be to start 2019 with a clear sense of what you should say yes to and what you should say no to? And say that with conviction. That's a powerful privilege. But churches, well, we tend to do the same thing individuals do. We don't get clear on, on what our God dream is and our God-given limits, and we just kind of keep adding things because we're a collection of people who just keep adding things to their lives. Last month as a staff, we took some time to list all of the unique events that we did as a church last year in 2018. And the way we counted these events is if the event was a repeating event, we only counted it as one. So this event right now is one event, not 52 for all the weeks that we're going to meet in this format over the course of 2019. This is one event. And so we totaled up the number of unique events that we 
did as a church back in 2018, and the total number came to 230. So if you came to this event and you wanted to go to everything we did as a church, one down, 229 to go. 230 unique events. Now, is that too many or is that not enough? Well, how, how would you know? I mean, there's no verse in the Bible that says every church should have no more than 40 unique events. How would you know? Well, you first would have to consider the frame that God has for us as a church, of his dream for us. Because God's dreams occur inside of a frame. And a frame has four sides to us. These are the four sides to the, to the God dream. The first side is mission. I know you thought I was going to be doing some painting, but I'm not. The first side is mission. Mission answers the important question of what. What are we doing? It's a statement that summarizes the assignment that God has given to us as a church. Now, thankfully, we don't start as a church with a blank page. Jesus gave us the overall mission for every one of his churches. Just before he left here, having accomplished his mission here, this is what he said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Here's the mission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. I'm going to help you carry this dream out. So the mission of every individual church exists within this larger framework. But it's a big frame, isn't it? How many nations are included? All nations. Well, we number as a church in the hundreds, close to a thousand. We can't get to every nation. We live here. And then we're supposed to teach those who are part of our church to obey how many things that Jesus said? 48, 70, everything. I don't even know how big that list is, but it's, it's a big list. Everything is a lot. And you have jobs to go to and responsibilities beyond this and lives to live. So your available time to learn how to obey is really limited. So what then is our assignment? What statement will help us decide how we go about making disciples and training them to obey? And what statement will help us figure out which nations we're supposed to help with and which ones we're not? What sentence will keep us on track as we help people to learn to obey what Jesus taught and grow them over time? That's what I'm going to talk about next week. The sentence that is a laser focus for us. The second side of the, of the frame of God's dreams is the value side. The mission answers the what side. Or the what question, the values answer the why question. Why are we doing it? 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, we read this. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He'll bring to light what, first of all, is hidden in the darkness. What we did. Not what we presented, but what actually happened. The record of our lives. And secondly, we'll expose... Not just the what, but the why, the motives 
of men's hearts, of our hearts. And at, at that time, we will each receive his praise from God. Motives are why we do what we do. So God is not only concerned about what we do, but why are we doing it? In other words, we could be doing the right thing, but for the wrong motives, and that's not pleasing to God. So why is motives, why is the why such a big deal? Let me give you an example from my own life recently. Last month, I took the electronic waste that had been piling up in our garage to the recycling place. You know, things like the batteries and light bulbs, fluorescent, fluorescent tubes, those kinds of things. I took them to the recycling place. Now, I've done this many times before. This is not the first time I did this. But this time, I got a, a big response from my wife. I got a big thank you and a hug and a kiss. Now, why? I've done this many times before. But you know what the difference was with this time? Let me just be honest. Something about me is I don't notice stuff like that. I don't know how big the pile would need to get in the garage for me to actually notice. It might have to impede my path to the car. And then I would notice, what are all these light bulbs doing here? But, of course, my wife notices these things much earlier. And we've been married a little over 33 years, and I am still growing in my ability and my, my skill in loving her. And I've learned that one of the things that means a lot to her is when I notice something like that and I take care of it. And so I did. And she noticed that it was gone, which is amazing to me. I mean, I, I would have gone a year. It's like, oh, whatever happened to that pile of stuff? <laughs> she noticed it right away. Did you take the stuff to the, yeah. Oh, <laughs> hug and a kiss. Same activity, different motive. What had been my motive before? No sense of obligation. Now, that's okay. I mean, sometimes we just have to do what we have to do. But isn't love a better motive than obligation? I mean, those of you that are dating, if you're thinking you want to marry the person you're dating, would you want them to marry you out of obligation or out of love? Well, out of love. You don't want anybody marrying you with a sense of, well, <laughs> somebody's got to do it. Might as well be me. No, 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 no. That, you know, same, same what, getting married, but a real different motive. See, motives really, really matter. Love is a better why than obligation. So if God just wanted us to do the right things, he would have created robot-like creatures to just do the right things. But he made us in his image. Because God not only does what he does, he does it out of a certain set of whys that he really values. And so he made us as an image so that we might choose to freely do, not out of obligation, but from our hearts, what really matters to him for the right reasons. So why we do what we do really matters to God. The next side of the frame is strategy. Strategy. This answers the how question. How are we doing it? Strategy is the pattern of behavior that tells us how we're going to accomplish the mission. I mean, you can identify what the mission is. You can identify what the values are, you know, the reasons God wants you to do it. But if you don't have a way of getting it to work into your, actually, your, your week, your actual patterns of behavior in your week, it's not going to get done. 
A mission is just words until it's turned into a set of behaviors that are not only clear, but doable for everyone. So let me ask you, how clear and how doable are 230 events? Well, as we looked over this list, oftentimes I'd have to stop and say, what was that event? I don't remember that one. Who, who did that? Why did we do that? Oh, okay, yeah, now I remember. So there was a lot of events that I wasn't even clear on, and I'm the pastor. So I assume there's not any more clarity than I have on the events. So it's impossible to be clear on 230 events. That doesn't mean that everybody has to be clear on everything, but we need to be clear on what we're doing. And how doable are 230 events? Well, my guess is that I was at probably 50 of them. And I do this full time. So our strategy has four patterns of behavior that we can all do. Every event that we do, however many events there are, is going to fit within these four patterns of behavior. Then the last side of the frame is our measures. This is the part we don't like. The measures answer what question? They answer the when question. When are we successful? You know, when I worked in advertising, that was a pretty easy question to answer. When were we successful? Well, when we made a profit. And we knew every month whether it was a successful month or not a successful month. But a church is, well, it's classified as a nonprofit organization. Now, it doesn't mean we don't need money. It does take money to pay the mortgage and keep the lights on. But what that does mean is we are successful not when we turn a profit, but when we accomplish our mission. So what does it look like if we're making progress in that? What does success look like? What, without clear measures of success, whether it's as an organization or as an individual, what will happen is we will distort whatever the frame of our assignment is and we will begin calling things success that really are not within that frame because we're not clear. So these four sides frame the limits of God's assignment for us. The second part of every God dream is God dreams occur over time. First, they occur within the limits of a frame, and secondly, they occur over time. This is the picture part that goes inside the frame. It answers the question, where is God taking us? What unique things are we going to accomplish? Now, God dreams usually take a great deal of time to accomplish. In the former days, in the Old Testament portion of the Bible, God told Abraham he would be a father. He gave him a vision, told him he'd be a father of not just one individual, but of a great nation. But it had to start with one. Twenty-five years later, Isaac was born. Twenty-five years after the dream was given. God also told Joseph that he would be a great ruler. This occurred actually in a dream. Fifteen years later, in a tour as a slave and in prison, fifteen years later, Joseph was number two in all of the world, second only to Pharaoh. Fifteen years. So in the time leading up to the arrival of those dreams, Joseph and Abraham didn't just sit there and wait for the dream to materialize. 
there were important smaller steps to take. And it's the same with every God dream. God dreams don't just materialize before our eyes as we sit back and watch. No, God says, you're a part of making this happen. And so we have to travel in time forward as we work with God to accomplish his dreams. And we don't just, you know, this isn't Star Trek. We don't just beam from place to place. We actually walk. We move in time forward day by day. And a clear picture of where God is taking us helps us know if we're making daily progress or if we're getting off track. Now, we see the future the way our eyes see the horizon. So here's a picture. Just imagine you're here. This look, to me, I'm not sure that this looks like the Canadian Rockies to me or maybe somewhere the Tetons. I'm not sure. But as you see this picture, you don't just see one distance. You can see all the different distances. Now, farthest away is what's beyond the horizon. In this case, the mountains block the horizon, but that's the farthest you can see. That's the dream part. We can't see it. We can't see on the other side of the mountains, but we we know it's there. We can imagine it, and we can move in that direction. But if we're going to get to beyond the horizon, we have to then consider the background. That's the furthest that we can see. And then if we're ever going to get to the background, we need to cover the mid-ground, the mid-range of of the distance. And then finally, we've got to get around this tree in front of us, the foreground. So every step that we take is marked by these four views. Now, let me give you just a less impressive example than this beautiful view. After church is over, the third service, I'm going to want to walk to my car eventually. Now, I can't see it with my eyes. It is beyond my horizon. In this case, the horizon are these walls. I can't, I can't see beyond these walls. But I know where it is because I parked it. It's about right over here. So I can orient my body in that direction. But first, I need to get off this stage. That's my foreground. If I don't consider the foreground, if I just point my body towards my car and just start walking, I'm going to walk off the end of the stage and hurt myself. So I've got to look at the foreground and say, okay, now I've got to go this way or I've got to go that way or I've got to pretend I'm still young and just jump off the stage. <laughs> but I've got to address my foreground first. Next, once I'm past the foreground, I'm going to need to navigate the chairs and the people that are still in this room. I don't want to run into a chair or run into somebody. So I might have to make a sidestep and then keep moving towards my car. That's the mid-ground. Then I'm going to have to exit through one of these doors. That's, well, that's the background. And then I'm going to have to do the same thing again. I'm going to have to look at my foreground, not run into any of those posts or trees out there. And I just, that's how we move forward, both visually and in time. God dreams move the same way over time. He gives us an idea of where he wants us to go beyond the horizon. Let's say it's five years. It doesn't really matter what the time frame is, but let's just, Pick a spot in time. Beyond, where should we be in five years? Now, if we're going to make progress, we then need to look at the background and ask, okay, if so if that's where we're going in five years, where do we need to be in three years if we're going to have a chance of making it there in five years? That's the background. And then we need to look at the mid-ground and say, okay, so if that's where we're going to be in five years, and this is where we then need to be in three years, then where do we need to be in three, uh, one year if we're going to get there in three and there in five? 
And then we're finally ready to look at the foreground and ask, let's say in the next 90 days, what are the four or five most important steps that we can take to get us moving in the right direction? And we just keep doing this over and over and over again. 90 days? Okay, no. Just like me walking to my car. My eyes are just constantly scanning. I mean, it's not this big. I can do it without moving my head. But, but I'm looking at what's in front of me, what's the mid-ground, what's the background, what's beyond the horizon, where am I going? When I get in the car, I'm pointed towards my home. I can't see my home, but this is the way we move visually and the way we move through time. Now, the challenge for us is we tend to live, for the most part, foreground lives, looking no further than just 90 days in front of us, sometimes just a week in front of us. But we are created to dream God dreams. Now, all of this can be applied individually. But you and I were created to dream bigger than just what we can accomplish individually. And so as we begin 2019, I invite you to consider being a part of a dream that's bigger than me or you or anyone else. It's a God dream. As Joanna said, growth groups start this week. They're all going to be following along what we talk about in these Sunday messages and going a little further with it. I think, it's, I think it's a great opportunity to get a firm grip on the dream that God has for us as a church and then how you can play an important part in that. So I encourage you to join one of these groups. You can just you know take out this connection card. There's groups listed on the back. Check the box of the one that fits you. Make sure we've got your contact information and then just put it in the offering buckets as they're passing in just a moment. And then in addition to that, I want to invite you to join me in this prayer. This is a prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed about the church in Ephesus. And I'm praying this prayer, and I encourage you to join me in this prayer. Here's what he says in Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, who can dream bigger than any of us. According to what? Our power? No, his power that we just watch happen? No, that's at work within us. We get tired as God does his dream. We work, but his working within us. To him be the glory in what? The church. Not us. Not our nation. The church. And in Christ Jesus. For how long? Just for the next year or two? generation after generation after generation, forever and ever. If you want to be a part of something that ripples into all of eternity, this is what God dreams do. Our dreams, they come and go. God dreams are throughout all generations, forever and ever. And then Paul ends his prayer in the familiar way, amen, which means let it be so. I encourage you to join me in this prayer as we begin 2019 together. Let's pray. Father, you are the one who is able to do not just a little bit more, but immeasurably more than anything that we would even have the ability to ask for or we could even imagine. According to your power that is at work, not just independent of us as we watch you do your thing, but it's at work through us. We we get a chance to break a sweat on this and put effort into this. And see your power at work through us. 
And our desire is to bring glory to you, to, to turn heads in your direction. Through the church here and to the glory of Christ Jesus. We live in a community that, whose heads are turned so easily by the glory of much smaller things. And we long for our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, those that we travel these streets with, to turn their heads in your direction. We don't know how to make that happen. We don't have the power to make that happen. But we ask that as we move forward with the dream you've given us, that many in this community would begin to see your glory and turn their heads your direction and away from the much smaller light shows that are attracting them right now. And we ask that this would happen through your power. And we pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.